You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. Hey, everybody. This is Corey Minton with The Big Data Beard, and we are at Rev2 Conference, sponsored by Domino Data Lab in New York City. And I am joined by my good buddy, Brett Roberts. And we've also got on today Ron Bodkin from Google. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Ron, tell us a little bit about what you do at Google. So I'm in the CTO office for Google Cloud, and my focus is uh, helping customers really capitalize on Google's advances in artificial intelligence. So that means both working with our product teams, you know, in our cloud AI, and then beyond into other parts of Google mm-hmm. on the one side, and on the other side, working with uh, large customers that are working with Google in Google Cloud to really help them achieve transformative outcomes. Nice. So what were you doing before you came to Google? So part of that, um, I started a company, Think Big Analytics, that was helping enterprises with uh, data science and big data. Um, grew that. We were acquired by Teradata and led that as a business unit inside Teradata. Okay. Nice. So you've clearly been in this big data and AI space for a while. What's your take on the, the current state of AI and industry? Yeah, so I've really been, the reason I joined Google is ultimately seeing how quickly uh, the field was advancing, you know, largely because of investments in deep learning Mm -hmm. that uh, leaders, uh, especially at Google, were really driving, right? So I think it's been fascinating to see how quickly the state of the art has evolved. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when I, I really started getting into machine learning about 12 years ago, prior to Think Big, I uh, was at Quantcast where I ran data science and engineering teams that were a pioneer in ad tech Mm -hmm. and audience measurement. Um, And back then, you know, we just started, we, we had big data and we were using very early versions of Hadoop. Probably we were the first people to put Hadoop in production because we were crazy enough to do it before <laughs> Yahoo dared to do it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, back then, anytime our data scientists wanted to implement an algorithm, mm-hmm. and, and these would be today what we think of as, oh, simple small algorithms like matrix factorization or SVM. Well, you'd have to read the paper. And then you'd have to carefully code an implementation and debug it. It took weeks to try out a single algorithm on a data set, mm-hmm. right? And so it was slow. Yeah. Nowadays, of course, we think that's, that's so antiquated. Simple <laughs> algorithm like that, you could just go find it on GitHub, five different implementations, pick your favorite language, and off you go. Yeah. You could try three of them out in the morning, right? Um, so that's been game-changing. Yeah. But then you know, beyond that, right, uh, the, the evolution from, you know, hey, we just need to get one giant machine with as much memory and CPU as possible to a world of, hey, we really can use a cluster to train a large-scale deep learning model mm-hmm. has been a big change. Yeah. Right? And, and likewise, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated last year, OpenAI put out this nice analysis of how much compute has increased in some of the state-of-the-art uh, deep learning AI models, mm-hmm. right? And, and you know, over a four-year period, uh, about a 300,000x increase in computation, right? So doubling every three and a half months, yep. right? So like far faster than Moore's law ever operated, doubling over 18 months, right? And so I think clearly we're seeing, that maybe it's sort of catching up on how much we can use the power of more computation to extract more signal out of the data. Yeah, absolutely. So what is the office of the CTO at Google thinking about these days? Like what are the things that are keeping you guys busy and up at night? Well, you know, I think I think uh, it's a big 
range in the sense that you know the just the evolution of cloud in the enterprise is is a big deal, right? And you know, I think it, there's this interesting disconnect that the digital natives, you know, sort of like the consumer side of Google, which has been leading the way, and and you know, similar companies have have been in the mindset of cloud and and what it means for years, right? Mm -hmm. Whether building your own or more and more, you know, like the, the Snapchats of the world saying, hey, we don't need to go build our own cloud. We're going to use one from Google, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe some other clouds too. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the point being, now the enterprise is getting serious about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's gone from, you know, five years ago, enterprises were toe dipping in cloud and sort of like, can we test this out? Now the conversations are like, how do we move our SEP workloads over to cloud? Mm -hmm. How do we think about moving off of Oracle onto a more modern database, right? Th those kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we think about building a, a cloud native architecture uh, so our applications can run well in multi-cloud and in a hybrid scenario where we're going to have, for example, at a retailer, we're going to have compute in the store, mm -hmm. but we want it to work well with our cloud infrastructure and have a common control plane, right? Yeah. So those are some of the types of things, as well as, of course, like how do you really think about leveraging the value of your data, getting more of it and using it to drive value in AI, right? So those are all big things that we think about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. When I think about the, the, in the big data industry, so much of what is being done today feels like it was what Google was doing three years ago, right? If we think about you, you talked about Hadoop, right? Well, this is, it was born from an idea that, that originated in the, in the Google world. So I'm curious, what is, how is Google taking their, this advanced knowledge and advanced awareness of, you know, technology trends and ways to solve problems? How are you making that consumable for your customers of cloud? Well, I think a big thing is, you know, we build uh, high quality managed services that make it easier to consume, right? So like, having spent many years helping customers bring Hadoop online, mm -hmm. you know, the amount of effort of getting everything configured, getting it tuned, getting it working. And then like, how do you, how do you keep it up to date? Cause nobody knows how the workloads are going to evolve once they start scaling. Yeah. And then, you know, in a classic Hadoop environment with fixed infrastructure, it's always like, wow, we have to think about what do we do? We have the wrong machines and we yeah. just spent all this money and we've got a three-year amortization we want to go through, right? So in cloud, it's a lot easier, right? And I think, you know, part of it is, again, Google had to build these massive scale capabilities for our own purpose, right? So I think it's underappreciated, for example, BigQuery, right? So when we talked to customers, I was talking to a customer, we large scale computation migrating over from, you know, another cloud. And, and they, they were saying, well, like, now you're telling me that we can just put all our data in to BigQuery and we don't have to worry about usage patterns. We can just let people query it and it's going to work fine. Like we don't have to like carefully lay out and design and limit access because we'll create hotspots. We're like, no, right? it's really designed. We have the network, we have the capacity. You can really have this beautiful property of having the data accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. You can even share it with others. And, and it works really well because of the architecture we've built, yep. right? And it's interesting, like the CTO of Demandbase told me that when they moved from Spark to BigQuery, they saw about a uh, four times increase in productivity for the data science experiments just because that ease of access to data, mm -hmm. right? It's not like sitting there waiting for Hive and hoping that the thing, the cluster doesn't craps out on you, right? And in fact, it's interesting what I found 
I've done some amount of work on Google's internal systems. And in fact, there's a lot more queuing. There's a lot more resource contention. Uh, the nice thing about the Google Cloud environment is actually, you know, you can, since you're, you're paying for access, you can sort of more effectively get the resources you yeah, need, right? Absolutely. So one of the things you, you mentioned is that there's this, this idea where, yes, you need to have the ability to potentially run things on-premises, you need the ability to run them in a cloud, in a hybrid cloud way, and the edge. How is Google helping to achieve that sort of multi-cloud, edge-enabled world? Yeah, so we, a couple of things, right? One big thing, we've put a lot of investment into what we now call Anthos, which is open source, uh, a set of open source technologies to make it easy to run cloud-native services in different clouds, mm -hmm. as well as on-premises. Uh, so that includes um, GKE, which is a Kubernetes environment mm -hmm. on-premise mm -hmm. as well as in cloud. Mm -hmm. um, some, of, some of what we've put in an, an open source control plane, SDO, to make it easy uh, to manage mm -hmm. the assets and lets you, you know, with smart proxies, layer in some additional control and capability on top of existing pieces. Um, but then on top of that, we then have some commercial software to, to make the implementations work really well so we can provide kind of higher quality experience um, by using some of Google's unique IP, right? So we're doing a lot there. And you know, we, we feel like Kubernetes was a great example. We, all the learnings we had around how we run massive scaled clusters with Borg, mm -hmm. we said, we're gonna do the next design around how how we'd like that to look for the future mm -hmm. and you know putting that in open source it, it really took off and it's ultimately become a standard across clouds and more and more on-premise support because of that right so we feel like the next iteration is expanding that service area right so that's a big deal right that 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 anthos approach um you know the other thing on edge uh we we also are you know addition to of course it could be deployed into a variety of environments uh because Edge can mean a variety of different things, right? You know, we have other parts of Google that are invested heavily, you know, with Android doing a lot around mobile and unique capabilities. You know, we have, you know, ML kit to make it easy to deploy models to phones. We even uh, rolled out um, specialized uh, AI hardware. Uh, so we have TPUs in the data center, but we now have Edge TPUs, which, which run on tiny amounts of power, can be run out on the edge, you know, whether it be on a camera or a phone, right? Yeah. And you know, typically you see 100 times faster uh, time to compute a model, for example, on a computer vision model versus a traditional uh, mobile CPU, right? So there's a great demo we did uh, showing um, a camera tracking people's uh, faces and gaze of their eyes, and you get more and more people coming into the frame, and the Edge TPU can keep up with like a dozen people looking around. Whereas you know you see uh, a CPU struggling with one, and you get beyond one, it just can't handle it, right? So it's it's a great example of the difference in in bringing that kind of specialized power uh, to bear. So I do want to double click on that just for our audience. Can you go into the differences from the you know hardware standpoint between a TPU, GPU, CPU, and kind of why that is so impactful and how is that helping Google? Sure. So a TPU is a specialized accelerator chip that's designed just for deep learning, right? So it turns out that deep learning, uh, when you get behind it, it's a lot of matrix operations. So you have a massive amount of matrix multiplying ads, mm -hmm. right? And so typically you're feeding large batches through a, a network. And so you can pipeline at large scale a lot of these computations going through mm -hmm. and, um, and get a lot, a, a lot more throughput by calculating them 
in in that kind of pipelined way with a very specialized design, right? Okay. Whereas a CPU, of course, is a general purpose architecture, can do anything, mm -hmm. but um, it's not especially optimized for doing these kinds of uh, deep learning calculations, like right? Matrix, matrix multiplier, stuff yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, some of it is, uh, some. there's also benefits in terms of having, for example, specialized lower precision math. It turns out that for a lot of deep learning applications, you can have much lower, fewer bits um, than you would you you need for a general application, right? Uh, you know, you look at things like eight-bit uh, integers are often plenty to handle deep learning problems, whereas you know people are often using 32, 64-bit floats for other purposes, and that's a lot more costly, yep. right? So, so it's specialized. Um, CPUs on the other extreme is completely general, but much less efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and GPU is interesting because GPU uh, has some of those elements, it has a lot more parallelism than a traditional CPU. And so GPUs ended up providing, you know, a pretty nice boost in terms of deep learning performance versus CPUs. But, you know, in terms of performance and power efficiency, much less so than specialized uh, deep learning accelerators. Now, what's happening, though, it's interesting, is you look at uh, the, the GPU vendors and they're having realized this, they're starting to build more specialized versions of their GPUs that are, in fact, deep learning chips, right? So starting with NVIDIA's um, V100, right, mm -hmm. they, they put in a little tensor unit. It's only 4x4, four four, so it's a lot smaller, but still saying, hey, we want to start to have specialized acceleration for, again, these deep learning computations, right? So I think, you know, th there's lots of investment going on around how do you build specialized hardware for deep learning. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we started in the game quite early, the first TPU we, we, we put out in 2015. Um, so that was before anybody else was really thinking about building specialized chips, and we continue to iterate. The other thing that's interesting about it is, um, you know, we don't just... Uh, in the data center, right? We don't just build uh, an optimized chip, but we also think about how do you build the whole architecture, right? How can you build a whole pod with over 100 petaflops, you know, which means getting all the networking and not having bottlenecks. And there's a lot that goes into making a, a system like that work. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I think it's one of the big advantages of, of managing a cloud, right? Hey, the TPU is uh, version three is liquid cooled. Uh, good luck shipping a liquid cooled chip to the average data center, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so it goes, right? The yeah. heat and, and yeah. the networking requirements, right? But we designed the whole data center so that it can support these crazy AI requirements. Yeah. And we think that's gives a, a pretty big advantage over trying to build something that could run anywhere in any data center. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when are they going to ship? Oh, I mean, we're already in beta. You are? Okay. Yeah. yeah, the TPU awesome. V3 is, is in beta. So, you know, you can go out and try it out. Very cool. So you're at this Rev conference and you gave a presentation. Would you share with us a little bit about what you were talking about during your session? Sure. So I, I talked about what are some of the recent examples of how Google is applying deep learning to drive our business forward, right? Yeah. So I, I gave a few, but you know, some of the big ones were like, how is YouTube recommendations improving with deep learning? Mm -hmm. We demoed a couple weeks ago at Google I.O. Uh, being able to run uh, a, the Google Assistant on a Pixel phone locally instead of having to call out to the cloud. Okay. Um, and we showed an interesting thing, Kaggle, which is now part of Google. Mm -hmm. um, we did a contest a couple weeks ago again, or about a month ago, um, 
at Kaggle Days where we had a live competition of Kaggle Masters and Grandmasters and a new entrant, which was our AI, AutoML. And uh, the Google AutoML AI was in the lead for almost all 24 hours. At the last minute, a human team eked out a win and it came (laughs) second. Wow. But uh, so I talked about those applications and then broke down like, well, what are some of the emerging techniques, the rapid advances and deep learning that are enabling these? And then behind that, like, what are all the different kinds of software systems we have to have in place, including, uh, you know, as you, you alluded, to earlier the big data yeah. but also like tensorflow for machine learning mm-hmm. and then the uh and then systems with tensorflow extended to make it easy to actually run because there's a lot more to machine learning than just training and for serving sure. models mm-hmm. right and then finally some of what we were just talking about now like the infrastructure the networking and mm-hmm. tpu and so forth that are behind allowing that to happen right so a little bit of a slice through kind of the capabilities we bring to bear at google how they allow these kinds of magical experiences yeah so when you think about what's next for Google, like what are you working on for the, you know, what's the next thing, next innovation that you think is necessary to keep, you know, helping organizations adopt AI and help Google lead the way? Yeah, so I think I think there's a lot around um, starting to take uh, take these capabilities and and build more standardization in, in organizations, right? So they can really start to adopt at more scale using these kinds of capabilities. Uh, so, you know, we put a lot of investment in our AI platform to make that easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also, you know, the use of AutoML, making that available, which, you know, we, we, what we see is that's going to democratize. So it make it easier for more, for example, analysts mm-hmm. uh, or domain experts to apply machine learning instead of having to, you know, be bottlenecked on scarce data science experts. Yeah. Uh, there's still going to be lots of problems where you need data science experts, but I see us continuing to raise the bar mm-hmm. on where you don't. And then also a big thing that I work on a lot is like, how do we take some of the the deep know-how we have where you do need deep ML expertise mm-hmm. and build these kind of engines to power AI solutions, right? Yeah. So we talked about some of that, um, again, last month at our next conference, we launched Cloud for Retail and we had things like, hey, some of that recommendation AI knowledge that we use for YouTube, mm-hmm. we now make it available to help uh, e-commerce, right? So Pretty making cool. product recommendations based on all of our experience in doing recommendations and some of the signals we have about consumers that that we understand better the kinds of correlations or, or things that are going to make products successful, right? So yeah, very all cool. of those interesting areas for us. That's awesome, man. Well, it is it is interesting to me that it, so much of this the things that we see in open source and in these tech conferences, it's genesis is at Google. So it's super cool to hear what you guys are working on, where you're taking the industry, and I appreciate you spending some time with us. I want to shift gears if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, we're going to have a little fun. So a section called Rapid Fire. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. This rapid fire is brought to you by the Disney Data Analytics Conference, which is taking place in Orlando, Florida on August 20th through 21st. The Disney Data and Analytics Conference will bring together over 2,000 executives, managers, and analysts representing over 250 companies and universities, plus all the segments of the Walt Disney Company. This is truly a great conference to attend. We had a blast last year and learned a whole lot. And this year, you can save 20% off your conference pass by using promo code BIGDATABEARD-2019. We'll see you there. All right. So first question, what is the latest book that you've read that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, um, I I really enjoyed... uh, 
uh, Harari's uh, books that I read recently. So I guess the last one I read was 21 Problems for the 21st Century. Okay. So that's one I would recommend. Interesting. I have to check that out. So when you walk on stage, we're at a conference now. What would be your walk-on song? What song would you pick to go on stage? That's a good question. I don't usually... I, I love music and I listen to it a lot, but I don't usually think of a song when I go on stage. You know, I, I just... Uh, I try to just... Uh, kind of be meditative okay. and relaxed before I come on. Okay, so a little meditation, not, like not the song yeah. pumping you up. Uh, so I, I guess that could mean like um, uh, a Gregorian chant yeah, or an yeah. om or something, <laughs> right? Nice yeah. we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. So what piece of technology is currently making your life worse? I mean, it's a good question. I think, uh, I think you know, a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of social networking out there that is sort of making all of our lives worse and mm -hmm. In, in the way it's, you know, I've got a couple of teenagers, right? And so, like, when you see how how kind of addictive some of this is oh, and, and how much it's like, uh, it, it, you know, it actually can harm a lot their self-esteem. Like, you know, how many likes do I have on this thing? And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, we have to do a lot to battle that and have some mindfulness in the house and not have kids and, and, and adults in the house too yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> get drawn in, uh -huh. right? Absolutely. So I think that, that did maybe broader, like, having that balance of attention so you're not completely drawn into the digital world, but I think social media, it becomes a real focus. Yeah, yeah. that's a great I answer. I agree, put the, put the phones down, people at home, like, let's just stop it, I agree. No, I like that. Talk to each other. <laughs> so what's your biggest personal money pit right now? Money pit, it's uh, probably, it's, it's uh, probably travel, right? We end up doing- That's a good one. Yeah, we end up doing, uh, try to do a lot of travel. I mean, I guess, uh, we, we said, hey, over the last, uh, maybe five years ago, we realized uh, our son, who's now a junior, um, and our daughter, who's in eighth grade, don't have that much longer to be at home. And so being able to, to take money and, and go on fun vacations, like, you know, last summer we did a, uh, a cruise on the Rhine uh, as cool. a family, wow. you know, that, that yeah. kind of thing. It costs money, but, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique time in life when you've got kids at home. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's certainly a place that I'm glad that we're spending money, but it costs money. No, that's, so that's, a, that's, that's a good one. That's the I think that's the best money pit. Yeah, no, absolutely. So are there any shows that you're binging on right now? Well, uh, probably the big thing, I, I've been watching a lot of the NBA playoffs. I'm a big yeah. Warriors fan. Okay. Uh, All right. I, I, went to, I went to the finals last year and, and saw them uh, win. You know, I didn't see the final game, uh, that, but I, um, I did see one of the, the games they won at home. And uh, I've been watching a bunch of NBA leading up to the finals. It's crazy. This is the fifth year in a row that they've been to the finals. This That's right. Mind-blowing. The last time a team did that was the Bill Russell Celtics in the 60s. I'm a Celtics fan from Boston. So we, uh, we did not make it that as far as the Warriors this year. But we still have the Bruins. Yeah. We're, we're looking good with the Bruins right now. But no, right. no one's ever going to match those banners in uh, Logan Airport for <laughs> the Celtics. It's so impressive. Terminal C in Logan Airport. They actually have to add on to it for all the banners we have. Uh, we're going to hopefully knock on wood one more only city to get three wins in one year. So looking forward to that. Um, and then lastly, where's the next interesting place that you're going to? Uh, so let's see. The next interesting place I'm going to, I mean, uh, next week I'm going to, to uh, Kirkland, but that's not really that interesting. Washington, yeah. which is not, I don't think it's that interesting. <laughs> Sorry to our friends in uh, Washington State. <laughs> that's it's right. a great state. I used to live in Seattle, so maybe that's why I don't think yeah. it's that interesting. <laughs> that's right. Um, you're over it. I'm over so, the homeless in there. It's just in, insane how many 
people are just everywhere on the street. Like you can't get away from it. It's insane. I mean, San Francisco's worse though. Is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. you're probably right. It's nice <laughs> weather though. <laughs> it, it, it is nice weather, and it, it's nice to live in the Bay Area. But yeah. uh, certainly, some work to do. I mean, I just got back from Amsterdam, which was cool. That's a great time. Um, so maybe we'll count that as honorary. It just happened. So <laughs> there you go. That's close awesome. enough. Well, it's been super fun to talk with you, Ron, about the things that Google is doing to help advance AI and advance AI in the enterprises. So thanks for being on the Big Data Beard. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.